Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to this week's slightly late edition of the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that says, OK, I know I'm only allowed outside for essential exercise in this lockdown, but what if my preferred way to keep fit is pretending to sunbathe in the park before running away from the police? I'm Tin and do Yeben as... I can't believe I have to say these words as irate stomach ulcer and acting Prime Minister Dominic Raab says the government... Acting Prime Minister... Says the government have been as transparent as possible. I wonder if he understands that means in terms of information given on COVID-19 strategies and not just how completely vacant everyone involved in tackling it seems to be. Yes, at the time of recording, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has gone into intensive care, which was so concerning I hadn't even given him an awful description on this week's show, although it was going to be bleached sea an enemy. Luckily, it seems according to the latest comments from the number 10 spokespeople, he is in good spirits, which either means he's on the mend or it's gone so badly they've pickled him and they're preserving him for a later date. And of course, I don't want any of this to come across as callous. I would not wish for the Prime Minister to die and I'm aware that, as everyone says, this virus doesn't discriminate based on anything, not even power. But the issue is that the system does and a big part of that is currently to do with the Prime Minister thinking the best way to handle the virus was to shake everyone's hands in a hospital and lie about how much money the NHS would get from Brexit. I do, however, very much wish Johnson would get a lot better soon, as well as recover from coronavirus. But we have been given some very odd information about his condition, which makes you wonder if we aren't allowed to see him as fallible and human, the first quality that we're all very much aware of. A friend of Johnson's told the news today that the Prime Minister was fitter than he looks, a sort of backhanded compliment which at best suggests that on a normal good day he could roll over without collapsing. Johnson went into hospital on Sunday night, which was groundbreaking as it meant he'd finally admitted to something. We were told that the Prime Minister was there because he was just undergoing routine tests as a precautionary step, which immediately rang alarm bells with the public and made us concerned that something wasn't right, because Johnson is a man whose recent notions of precaution have mainly involved herd immunity and just getting things done. I mean, it's a real wonder that Johnson hadn't tried to unlawfully prorogue the coronavirus so far so that he can just carry on. Why was Johnson having reoccurring symptoms? No one yet knows, but the last time that he was seen in public was outside number 10 clapping for the NHS, so maybe the vast insincerity lowered his immune system. Then, 
Everything suddenly ramped up and he was taken to the intensive care unit on Monday night, with many very worried for the Prime Minister's life. Tributes came in from global leaders wishing him well, including US President and thrown-out fairground decoration Donald Trump, who offered the Prime Minister some experimental drugs to help him, like the sort of friend of a friend who'd insist hair of the dog was the way to go after you'd been diagnosed with alcohol poisoning. Russian President and Play-Doh-filled morph suit Vladimir Putin said that Johnson's energy, optimism and sense of humour would help him defeat the deadly bug, but that's assuming the coronavirus has a really basic taste, and if it did, wouldn't have the recent Mrs Brown's Boys repeats in place of Match of the Day have killed it off weeks ago. What is admirable is that up until he was placed in the ICU, Johnson still insisted on being in charge and being Prime Minister, holding the first ever digital cabinet meeting on Zoom last week, while breaching security and posting an image with the meeting ID number in it. Though cleverly, it also showed all his cabinet colleagues that were attending that meeting, which was enough to put anyone off trying to join it. Hopefully Boris will get back to virtual prime ministering soon, a phrase that did actually work for him before the current pandemic too. Because without Johnson in charge, it means we are left with Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab calling orders, even though he'd struggled getting a takeaway. It is a smart move of Boris's to give responsibility to one of the few people who will have us literally begging for the prime minister to return to health as soon as possible. It's unclear just how much power Rob, a man who didn't realise there was a channel between the UK and Europe, has as acting PM, with indications that he's just carrying out orders until Johnson is back. One journalist asked during the press briefing if the country can still go to war, and it was confirmed that Rob, as the first Secretary of State, can respond in the PM's absence, because, you know, there's really not enough going on right now. I can't imagine how much worse the Blitz would have been if absolutely no one was able to evacuate, as it wasn't considered essential travel. Rob didn't answer any questions about whether the lockdown would continue, instead just reaffirming that the Prime Minister was a fighter, because I'm certain Rob, with his black belt in karate, thinks that he can just kick the pandemic to death and doesn't understand why no one's done that so far. The fatality toll from coronavirus is still rising every single day, with more and more frontline NHS staff being among those taken ill and dying, and it's all very upsetting and worrying. The government's scientific advisor, Inspector World Egg, Sir Patrick Valance, said the curve may be flattening, but we just won't know for a week or so, as what we're seeing now is the fallout from before the far-too-late lockdown, as the virus has a slower delay than every Skype interview currently featured on the news. So that means it's at least another week of being stuck indoors and essential travel only, a phrase that is very hard to define because government guidance has continued to change on it every few minutes. On Sunday, when there was the sort of sunny the weather must only have been doing to troll us, the number 10 official Twitter account said that you can go to the park for outdoor exercise once per day, before two hours later telling people that spending time in the park may put others' lives at risk, and not just if your exercise regime involved axe-throwing. Health Secretary and dog chewing toy Matt Hancock said that people must follow the rules as he gave a press briefing less than 14 days after he'd had coronavirus symptoms, breaching NHS guidelines. It's like someone wiping cake crumbs away from their mouth, telling people not to eat any cake. If we all follow the rules, said Hancock, then we'll be faster through this, which is true and why it was extra concerning when he turned up to the opening of the new emergency Nightingale Hospital in London while still coughing. But hey, I guess it's not an official opening unless you get to give them a patient to kick it all off with at the same time. If people still go to public spaces such as parks and they aren't the health secretary, well, then further steps could be taken, just not in an outdoor space, obviously. Hancock rebuked the minority of people risking the lives of others. And yes, Matt, you see, it's the 1% versus the 99%. We've all been saying that for years. Wait, why have you arrested all those people on low income stuck in small flats with no gardens? No, that wasn't what I meant. Ugh...
What might get us through this crisis faster would actually be if there were proper levels of testing in the UK. But when questioned on why the promised antibody tests to see if someone had had the virus haven't yet been rolled out, Hancock said they have to be confident that it's a good test and that no test is better than a bad test. Ah, the old Brexit deal adage that rings idiot logic like someone wearing a chastity belt because no one's better than a bad one, even though the former may lead to dying alone with a severe urine infection. Though it has turned out that the antibody tests weren't actually right, and not just because we're now in a more body-positive world. They only identify immunity in people that have been severely ill, meaning that money would have been spent on millions of tests when you could have just asked, have you had a really shit few days and or died? And if they replied yes, then you'd probably have saved some cash. The government have retracted their order for the home antibody tests, with new ones likely in several months' time, by which point we'll need extra tests for rickets. When it comes to those, we've now no tests and no bad tests, and when it comes to the main COVID-19 swab tests, the UK is still 90,000 short of the 100,000 a day that were promised. So much like the Brexit deal, it seems no test is also better or preferred by the government to one that seems sensible but would cost money and investment into the infrastructure needed, and then how would you be able to easily divert blame onto it instead of yourself? But yeah, that's not as catchy, is it? See also ventilators, as when Chancellor of the Duchy and shoe scraping Michael Gove admitted that 30,000 ventilators were needed, but the government had only secured 30. Is there an issue in the Cabinet with recognising the difference between decimal points and commas? Are Gove and Hancock thinking they've got appropriate medical supplies while simultaneously paying over £300 for a cup of coffee? It might explain why Matt Hancock insisted that now, the time NHS staff are stretched to their limits with work, is not the time to discuss pay rises for nurses. Maybe it's because he already thinks they somehow earn upwards of £80 million a year. Instead, the health secretary said, now is just the time for everyone to be doing their best, because nothing helps people push themselves to 110%, quite like knowing their earnings mean they also have to queue at a food bank on their one day a week off. Just do your best, push yourself, and next week we'll see if you can push yourself even harder and achieve the same after we've confiscated all the chairs and your shoes. Instead, Hancock has two solutions. One was that the government are wiping out £13.4 billion of NHS debt, something that most people responded to by saying, oh, why didn't you do that ages ago and then we might have enough ventilators by now. But before anyone could question how unnecessary austerity was or just how much of the financial issues within the public sector could be solved by someone having a good day and deciding willy-nilly to put a vertical line through the minus sign in the finances account, the health secretary said that actually we should all be blaming footballers for not taking a pay cut. Yes, that's right. I'm not sure if you knew, but the state we're all in now is down to Premier League players not single-handedly funding everything and absolutely no other reason ever. Of course it is. And that must be why, in order to tackle the issue, the government just keep moving the goalposts. It's not just the Westminster government that are giving mixed messages. Scotland's chief medical officer, Catherine Calderwood, a woman who looks exactly like a chief medical officer might in a daytime Channel 5 soap, contradicted her own advice of staying in by travelling to her second home 44 miles away. Maybe she thought that if absolutely everyone else obeyed her, she'd not risk spreading COVID-19 while she made a completely unnecessary journey. Dr Calderwood made an official apology on Sunday morning saying that she'd made a mistake, but it was a bit more than that. If your chief medical officer, travelling while telling everyone else to stay in, is the same as a chief fire officer saying people need to keep naked flames out of reach of children and pets and then hosting a flamethrower and dog-themed four-year-old's birthday party. First Minister and anemic matchstick Nicola Sturgeon said she wanted Calderwood to stay in her role as her advice was invaluable during the pandemic. And it is, as what better guide to have than someone who walks around like a public service broadcast demonstrating all the things you definitely shouldn't do. 
Catherine Calderwood resigned on Sunday night, saying she was deeply sorry for what she'd done, but had to resign as she didn't want her behaviour to become a distraction from what needs to be done. Though if she'd only distracted people beforehand, they might have not noticed her sneaking off to Fife. Dr Calderwood said she'd work to ensure a smooth transition to her successor, so chances are she'll be shaking their hands after not washing hers in the next few days. Infection numbers and death tolls have been dwindling in Spain and Italy, and our own infection numbers seem to be going down a little, which gives hope for the effectiveness of a lockdown, assuming the health minister and former Scottish chief medical officer aren't single-handedly carrying the virus around the country. But nothing gives the British people hope, though, quite like a rare speech from Her Majesty and one slipper lining the Queen, who broadcast to the nation at 8pm across all channels on Sunday evening, meaning it was obviously perfectly acceptable to have a Christmas dinner around 5 I'm not sure the Queen is the right person to speak to the public right now when she's only ever travelled for non-essential reasons, but it was nice that she thanked everyone for paying her bills in these difficult times and that she'll be doing a live stream on Twitch with a donate button so she can get some craft beers in. Ha! No, she actually thanked the NHS and said that we should take pride in our response to the pandemic. Because in what other country did everyone kick off that it was some sort of travesty that pubs were closed as apparently they didn't even do that in the war? Ah, so proud. The Queen ended her message with a nod to the classic Vera Lynn song, iconic during the Second World War, by saying, We'll meet again, which is not true as most people don't get to meet Her Majesty. Has she secretly met all of us? Was it a nod to an undercover mission she's been on her whole life, where, through a series of elaborate disguises, she's somehow met every single person in Britain like the ultimate version of Secret Boss? And if so, why isn't she being arrested for potentially being the main spreader of coronavirus? It is odd just how often this crisis is being referred to as like a war, and I'm just about worried where that will end, with Britain's usual habit of vilifying and othering everything to do with what it sees as the enemy. Will a post-coronavirus country involve anyone not covered head-to-toe in plastic overalls being called a traitor? Will Domestos become the new national icon? Will anyone who's ever sneezed or coughed be sentenced in a secret sterilised court? I don't know, but what I do know is that if that was the case, someone like Matt Hancock or Catherine Calderwood would be explicitly condemning the public for being irresponsible while licking a penny they found on the floor and flobbing into the crowd. In other news, the Labour Party has a brand new leader in the shape of wind-blasted celery stick Sir Keir Starmer, as after insisting the party needed a female leader who could appeal to the Brexit voting north, voters saw a man in a suit and went, ah, no, wait, that one. It was basically the well-spoken white man version of only a good guy with a gun can defeat a bad guy with a gun. Starmer said that under his leadership they will engage constructively with the government, which as everyone knows is impossible to do, unless he means he's on board with Boris's bridge plans. Many supporters seemed happy with Starmer's win, saying within minutes of the election results that Labour is now longer institutionally anti-Semitic, seemingly misunderstanding what institutionally means and just how much anyone can do on their first day in the job. Others were less pleased, saying it's a return to the Labour centrism that voters turned against in 2010 and 15. And let's face it, retro trends do only usually come around 40 years or so after they've died out. But Starmer has a very tough job in front of him, in that with the Conservative government actually spending money, he has to somehow persuade voters that his Labour Party will do what the government are doing, but be less shit about it. Yes, we too want to put money into the NHS, just uh, in a slightly different way. That's not really a winning campaign slogan. What if Ariel lived in a canal? Angela Rayner was elected deputy leader while she's self-isolating with coronavirus symptoms. She said hearing she'd won while not being able to leave her home was like being in a movie, though there is also a chance she got confused in her feverish state and just put on Disney+. 
Starmer's shadow cabinet includes MPs from across Labour's political spectrum and with former shadow financial secretary and Hergé drawing Annalise Dodds, becoming shadow chancellor and former party leader in Sad Dodd-Tanyan, Ed Miliband being energy secretary, is looking a lot like a sort of compilation show of Labour over the last 10 years. While that shows that Starmer is keen to unite the party, it should be noted that most compilation shows don't include what people really want to see and often leave you wanting more. To keep everyone excited about staying indoors, the BBC have announced that they will be showing a repeat of the London 2012 Olympics opening ceremony. And I hope this time it has an Arrested Development style commentary throughout, saying things like, but it turns out they didn't care about the NHS after all. Culture Secretary and overexposed photo Oliver Dowden is going to order social media companies to be more aggressive at dealing with conspiracies that 5G networks cause coronavirus, as people have been setting alight to masts across the country, which goes to show you why you always need a firewall. Scientists say any connection between COVID-19 and 5G is complete rubbish and biologically impossible, but I'd argue that in a climate where social distancing is advised, maybe everyone's just concerned about having faster connections. And Michael Gove is now self-isolating as a member of his family has coronavirus symptoms too, though it is probably hard to say how serious it is when most people feel unwell around him. Meanwhile, people are concerned about the whereabouts and health of the Home Secretary and the sort of person who'd call the police on you for taking the bins out during lockdown, Pretty Patel, who's not been seen or heard from in weeks. Maybe she's just been completely thrown off by having to detain herself for an indefinite period. Hello you, I'm so sorry this episode was late, but look, if things had gone really badly for the Prime Minister, I would have felt like a total arsehole putting this out. As it is, uh, I wasn't even going to put this out today, but number 10 are insisting that he's basically well enough to leap over lampposts and physically fight things, despite still being in intensive care. So I thought, um, as weird as it all is, I will trust their words for once, and if anything changes, I'll take this episode down as soon as... Oh, it's so weird though, isn't it? I mean, every day the news of people dying from this is so, so grim and depressing. Uh, words day of prisoner death rising as they haven't put the correct precautions into the system, unsurprisingly. It's none of this is remotely surprising. And yet I sort of feel it's very important to keep joking and having a laugh about it uh, to stop you descending into a spiral of misery and endlessly watching Disney Plus with a daughter, sorry, agent, who will currently only respond to you if I do a Mickey Mouse impression. I'm just, I'm pulling that out of thin air. That's definitely not based on reality um but there's something about the morality of it all isn't there you know doing you know doing jokes about this sort of thing um i did a gag about boris on twitter when he went into hospital on sunday but he didn't see him at death's door then and uh they were reporting that he was fine it was just a precaution and so i thought it's fine to do a joke about that because for all we know he's got mild symptoms i wouldn't have done one yesterday um and i didn't put this out just in case uh, meanwhile everyone on twitter was saying anyone who makes a joke about it is inhuman many of them uh, same people having said that they wish Jeremy Corbyn was dead several times over the past few years or people that you know didn't vote the way they liked on Brexit which they died it's sort of it's funny how it's a different thing when it's someone you like isn't it my thing is it's about punching up isn't it and, and what your morals of that are I guess um, I mean for me if the PM is not dying but is unwell but it happens to be very much the expected outcome of his kind of cavalier attitude to this horrific pandemic uh, and he is receiving treatment that so many won't because of his party's cuts to the NHS, money spent on Brexit no-deal preparations that were never ever needed, and a horrific belief that British exceptionalism somehow works on germs, then I think it's not out of order to poke fun at him, uh, you know, if, if he's not on his way to death's door. Um, I saw someone on Twitter, and so sorry for not crediting this, but I've tried to find it again, and I can't, uh, but someone said they hope Johnson got better, but then his first step out of bed is onto a Lego piece, and I feel that is the perfect way to sum this up. Um, I'm happy to, otherwise though, if you disagreed, uh, to be fair, if you disagreed, probably 
turned off by now and unsubscribed. Um, but I think humour in dark times is a very tricky subject, uh, not least on social media, where most people don't like it or enjoy it, even when things are relatively normal. Um, but, you know, these are odd times. People are very sensitive right now, and rightly so. Uh, it's also really not an easy time to write gags, uh, not just because of the massively miserable part of this, but also because uh, the less scary parts of being on lockdown are experienced by everyone, so finding a unique angle on it is really hard. Like I was talking with a comedian recently saying that when we come out of this, every single comedy show is about going to be about being on lockdown and running out of loo roll. It's going to get really tedious. I mean, look, hey, that is a privileged complaint to have right now. Um, but the reason I'm saying all this is I was planning to have a week off this show for Easter next week, back in the days when things were normal and everyone could buy rice and walk down the road just to criticise your neighbour's shit parking and not get arrested. Um, and while things have massively changed, unless there is a lot of news between now and next week, I am going for a little break. While I get my head around how on earth to do things like pay rent or give my daughter, sorry, my agent, things to do that aren't just watching TV shows, I then have to imitate for days on end. I'm not going to do my Mickey Mouse impression for you. It's not going to happen on today's show. Um, I know some of you rely on this podcast, which I'm very humbled by, and I had a couple of messages this week from key workers um, who are still commuting, doing incredibly important jobs uh, and listening to this on their journeys to those, um, which, my God, thank you for everything you're doing, and I'm so pleased I can be even the remotest of help to you if you're doing that so I will put something out next week maybe it'll just be a short intro gag bit like normal and then some of my stand up or something but I need a tiny break from writing half an hour of new stuff absolutely every week um before that this is a full episode largely recorded on Monday so excuse any now out of date bits and as always I'm so grateful to you for listening especially in these weird times and as a thank you my agent has agreed to record the call out for donations again this week donating the Kofi donating the Patreon clap for me no don't clap for her she didn't eat her dinner tonight and threw it on the floor so no clap deserved you can't waste food in these times um, thanks tons to Christine Veep Richard Vicky Dev Claire somebody Emma Fern and Mark for the Kofi donations and to Julia for joining the Patreon um, and if you can donate even a few quid to ko-fi.com forward slash bro or fancy joining the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash bro all of those are in the pod blurb um, it is an unbelievable help right now I cannot stress that enough um, but I'm also aware that so many other places need cash right now um, including charities like Help Refugees um, who are covering some awful shit and refugees not being allowed into various countries because of the pandemic and all sorts of awful stuff but they're also campaigning for refugees in this country to be able to help the NHS which is really important anyway please do uh, help them if you can and there's the Trussell Trust and so many more um, as you'll hear uh, in this week's interview um, so please only get me a coffee that I do have to make at home anyway um, if you can uh, yeah I mean it's really it does slightly ruin asking you to get me a coffee when uh, uh, you know to do that I've got to go to the supermarket dressed in sort of 14 bin bags and then um take on an obstacle course of uh, doddery people uh, in order to get it. Um, oh, and it is a tad late to plug this now, a little bit of admin, uh, but I'm doing the Next Up Comedy Twitch stream on Wednesday, April the 8th at 9pm, where they'll be showing some clips from my past comedy specials, and some poor comedian has to ask me about them, uh, which is 
an awful job for them. Um, then on Thursday 9th at 9am, I'm doing a kids show on the same stream. And April the 14th, I'll be hosting the brilliant Beck Hill, showing some of her comedy clips, um, also at 9pm. And that is all at twitch.tv forward slash nextupcomedy. Um, do check in uh, for those and you can find more details at uh, the nextupcomedy.com website. Um, I've also been playing around with my own Twitch stream too. Uh, something I didn't even know what it was uh, until recently because 12 year olds have got their shit together and I have not. Um, and thank you to those of you that have endured my uh, trial gig that I did last Friday. Um, should you want to, it is still watchable at twitch.tv forward slash Tian and Um It was garbled shit for about 35 minutes, uh, but I do plan to do some more. So subscribe and on that digdar and uh, keep posted for that. On this week's show, I am interviewing Sue Tibbles at the Sheila McKechnie Foundation about the importance of civil society during this crisis and, well, to be fair, all the time. Uh, Plus, a little look at the new Labour shadow cabinet because it's not like there's anything else to do. Yes, I did think about doing more positive news this week, but then I thought, no, let's give you this unexciting shit while you're stuck and have nothing else to listen to, and then I'll lure you back in with more interesting stuff once you're allowed outside again and can pick between this podcast or more exciting sounds like, you know, someone being sick in a bin outside the pub. If you, like me, are an idiot, you might assume civil society just refers to people who always say please, thank you and hold doors open for others. You know who I mean. Those people. You know, the ones who are entirely absent from social media. But you'd be wrong. Uh, Not me, I'm not wrong, but you would be. Uh, Because while civil society does indeed refer to some lovely giving people, it's specifically about the sector of groups and organisations who work in the interest of citizens and are distinct from business and government because, well, they work in the interest of citizens. Right now, civil society is working its face off, trying to keep supporting those it already did, while providing aid to now millions of others whose lives have become more difficult due to the myriad of problems a global pandemic causes. But if civil society is supporting the people, who's supporting civil society? Sadly, charities aren't getting the donations they need and there's little support from the government because civil society combines two words that they don't appreciate individually, so together it's not something they can even contemplate. Back when he was Prime Minister in what feels like now a millennia ago, belly flop rash David Cameron touted his idea of big society, a system that was like civil society, only with the public holding it all up with loads of volunteering while austerity kicked in and the cost of living rose and everyone had to not be a shirker but somehow also work for free. Good times. Since then, charities have all but been gagged from speaking out against government policies and now, while many other sectors are receiving support, the one that's very, very vital isn't. Yet situations like the pandemic really show the importance of communities and small charities and their ability to bring social change. Everyone now being more keen than ever to meet and rely on their neighbours. Although that could be because probably they don't have anything else to do and they aren't allowed to go near them so it's finally quite appealing. How do we support civil society during this crisis and how do we make sure everyone, including politicians, remember its importance once it's all over? And will it be okay just to ignore our neighbours again when the lockdown ends or will I have to struggle to think of inane small talk about their garden hedge for the rest of my entire life? This week I spoke to Sue Tibbles, CEO of the Sheila McKechnie Foundation, a group who gives support and training to those seeking to bring social change. 
Supporting civil society is at the forefront of what they do, and Sue has worked in the social change sector for over 20 years. As she had recently written an excellent article featured on the Compass Think Tank website about the importance of civil society during the COVID-19 crisis, I thought it'd be great to ask her just what civil society is, why we need it, how we support it, and if it's okay just to put on a fake moustache and pretend you're someone new that's moved in so you don't have to talk to next door about how bin night has changed again for three hours. Okay, I didn't ask the last one because it's actually not relevant or remotely helpful. But Sue was fascinating to chat to and I hope you enjoy. Uh, now, before we go into this, I made a stupid boo-boo when recording where my computer, yes, I'm blaming the machine, and I know this is how the AI war starts, but I'm blaming the machine. It switched the microphone in use to the crappy one attached to my headphones instead of my proper mic, and it took me a minute and a half to realise. So, at first, it sounds a bit like myself and Sue are talking through opposite ends of a beehive, but then magically, one and a half minutes in, it's all very clear and normal. I am sorry, but it's definitely the machine what did it. It wasn't me. I hope you enjoy Despite Temporary Bees. Here is Sue. Hi, Sue. Um, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Um, I, I should I should ask before I ask you anything else, just check how, how are you doing? Are you coping with lockdown? All OK. Hello, I am fine. Thank you. I'm um, thankfully healthy. Um, I'm at home with my daughter who's back from university um, and we're absolutely fine. I've got family members I'm a bit worried about, but so far, so good. And we're very fortunate we've got a nice home with a garden and some space. So we're, we're doing fine. Thank you. Oh, nice. Good, good. Very glad to hear it. But I always feel that's the most important thing to ask right now before we get on to anything else. Um, I, I suppose the first proper question I should ask you really um, is just what is civil society? Because it's not a term that everyone will be familiar with. And I wondered exactly what areas uh, civil society covers. Yeah, no, that's right. That's that's one of the difficulties, if you like, is that we don't have a term that's commonly recognised that, that captures all the different sorts of organisations that make up what we would call civil society. I mean, if you just sort of Googled it, it says something like a community of citizens linked by common interests and collective activity. So that's the idea of civil society. It's when we're doing things, not for our own private gain, but for sort of social value, when we're doing things together. And it can be anything from a very informal neighbourhood group right up to kind of big household name charities. But exactly as you say, we don't really use the term civil society. In fact, people would be called names. Um, sometimes you talk about the third sector, which is supposed to discriminate it from the private and public sectors, which is quite helpful. Although actually, I think people then tend to think it's third in terms of pecking order, which isn't obviously the idea or it gets called the voluntary sector. I think one thing that we um, are mindful of is that in this country, we're very sort of rooted in the idea of charity, which is of course got its feet in sort of Victorian philanthropy. And the idea that middle-class do good as a handing out the soup to the, to the sort of great unwashed. And it means that we don't have the same sense. In the States, civil society is a word that's very commonly used and it's rooted in rights, it's rooted in um, political movements. So there's got much more agency and power to that conversation. And we just don't have that currently here. Um, so my organisation, along with many others, is trying really hard to build that sense of civil society in this country. And I think this current uh, pandemic really illustrates why it's so necessary, because in fact, we know that uh, civil society from big, big charities, the Red Cross, probably leading the big charity effort 
right down to on my street, as I'm sure it is yours and many others, new community groups setting up at a neighbourhood level, people help. It's all civil society. There's, there's something about using one collective term for everything that, you know, makes us understand that it's all connected and it's all part of doing very, you know, the same very important job. Does everyone thinking that it's different factions cause issues? Yeah, it definitely does because, um, you know, uh, divided when we're we're weaker um and it allows you know i think if you ask the public people can have quite a sort of wizened view about charity because they see these very big brands there's always these public debates about excessive pay and so on i mean in reality the vast vast majority of charities are tiny 82 percent of charities have income below a hundred thousand pounds they only take between them 20 percent of the income so it is true that the big charities um, even though they're only 18% of the sector, they take four-fifths of the money. So there's this huge distortion. And I guess, particularly for very big charities that are delivering services on commercial terms of government, you could say, what's the difference to private sector providers who provide services? Um, if you ask people what charities they really love and admire, they'll think of the big brands, whereas actually the ones that are working close to them will be much smaller local organisations they perhaps with not very good visibility, it's quite hard actually to find out how many uh, charity and voluntary organisations are active in any one area. So I live in Lewisham actually, so I thought I'd, t- I'd test it out yesterday. So I just sort of typed in charities in Lewisham and I got the details of three. Well, there will be many, many, many more than that. So because it's amorphous civil society, because it is made up of so many different sorts of things, you know, voluntary groups, social enterprises, it would include trade unions, churches, faith groups. It's made up of many, many parts. Um, a lot of it sits outside the market. So for all of these reasons, it's very hard to knit it together. And yet we all exist to do the same thing, which is to create social value. And we are all uh, completely interdependent. So again, at the moment, the idea that, you know, it's only small frontline charities that are really making a difference, that isn't true. The Red Cross are, but this week we had Crisis, for example, who would be one of those well-known charities, giving grants to small frontline homeless organisations. So there's there's a there's an amount of connectivity in the sector, which again is hard to see sometimes from the outside. Um, and then I think the other thing about civil society is that it is stitching together the individual household experience. So if you do go on to, say, the COVID mutual aid networks that have sprung up, if you, I mean, online, people asking for help, a lot of the direction being given is to, is to charities. You know, people are saying, I haven't got kit. I need a laptop for my son or daughter to be able to work from home. If you read through all the recommendations, most of them are directing people to charities of one sort or another. So charities or civil society is the glue that keeps community and people together. But we don't have um, a common understanding of that and we don't have a clear articulation of that. And that is a problem practically and politically. So what are the, the parts of civil society that people are aware of? Who are the kind of big name groups that we might think of uh, that come under that term? Yeah, no, it's, so it's interesting, isn't it? So I think, you know, people will be aware of the big household name charities. Lots of them would be the big kind of fundraising research charities like cancer charities or British Heart Foundation, um, some of the big international development charities, which, as as we know, are actually in the minority. The vast majority of charities are very small. 
The other thing I think that's kind of interesting at the moment, though, is that in terms of individuals, people who are leading civil society organisations, we don't have a cadre of leaders from the sector at the moment who are in the public eye. They're not on uh, the news frequently. They're not on Question Time. They're not on Newsnight. They're not on all of those programmes where politics are discussed. And that didn't used to be the case. So, in fact, Sheila McKechnie and my organisation set up in her memory she was a campaigner, she was at Shelter from the mid-80s to the mid-90s and went on to become chief exec of what we now know as Witch, the consumer watchdog. When she was there, Witch was really on the front foot with campaigning, really punchy campaigns, largely around differences in pricing between the UK and Europe at that time. And she was on the telly all the time. So even now, and it's 15 years since Sheila died, people know that name and they know of her. It's very hard now to think of the equivalent, who are the Sheila McKechnie's from civil society who we regularly see in our news? And we know from experience that one of the problems is that news producers tend to think, well, we'll only get someone on if we're talking directly about their issues. So if we are talking about homelessness, we'll get Polly Neep from Shelter on. Polly, who currently runs Shelter, used to run Women's Aid, used to work for Action for children, she knows a lot about a whole raft of issues and should be in the public eye just based on her knowledge and experience in the same way we invite business leaders or indeed politicians or journalists. So it would be really lovely to see more of the talents from civil society in the public eye. I suppose, again, it's like, you know, much like we sort of said, how civil society covers many things, but they're all, they all have the same aim. It's again, a lack of joined up thinking in, in other areas as well, not realising that various problems don't, you know, don't help other problems or, or lead to them. That's right. That's right. And the sector and the sector has to take some responsibility that we kind of do end up allowing ourselves to be quite siloed, that you are the homelessness sector or the refugee sector and so on and so forth. Whereas, in fact, all of those things are deeply connected by economic policy, aren't they, and social attitude and the rest. And there needs to be ways in which we can sort of look across the very specific issue we're working on to try and look upstream to what are the structural adjustments that need to be made to make all of these problems easier. But that is happening. That is beginning to happen. There is a sense in which the sector is really sort of stepping in and stepping up and thinking we need to be much more involved in public and political debate. We need to get on the front foot and we need to really sort of make our views known and heard. So I, I think we're going to see more of it. I've seen on, on your site and some of your articles that are talking about how civil society is particularly effective right now. And it's part of that to do with the fact that we're all we're all being localised. We're all locked down in our local area. And it's maybe those smaller groups that understand, uh, you know, issues that, that people have uh, around them more clearly. Well, to be honest, I think in a way, uh, you know, the current crisis has revealed the reality of how civil society works and has been working for a very long time, particularly since the purse strings were tightened and austerity was brought in. You know, we've had a decade of a receding state and civil society has largely moved into those places and spaces. So we know that there are there has been a proliferation of activity at a local and community level from everything from dealing with food shortages, local food banks, responses to the refugee crisis, very local networks of people finding ways to, to provide homes or a warm welcome. Um, so civil society is 
is is very uh, alive, it's very responsive, it's very alert. I think what's particularly been added on is this kind of street by street level of engagement. So these mutual aid networks that have kind of plugged civil society even more deeply into the local area, literally sort of house by house. And that's what it feels like, doesn't it? It feels that each home, hopefully for most of us, is now better connected to every other home around us which in turn is then better connected to the local civil society infrastructure, existing groups, existing charities, from the very small all the way up to the very big. So I think it's just the the glue has strengthened. But in truth, civil society, this is what it does. And it has been doing more and more for quite some time. Um, I was going to say, what, what can it kind of uh, achieve that can't be done by government powers at the moment because I mean, you've you mentioned the mutual aid group several times our, our local one is has been absolutely amazing and i feel like there are people on that group who've been neglected for quite some years who are now having attention paid to them by local people that maybe didn't know they were there before yeah that's right yeah absolutely um so of course you know government has a central role to play in it and it is to a very large extent playing it from a top-down perspective but what i think civil society does which the state just can't do is build that local um connectivity and relationship um being able to reach directly into someone's home on a personal basis um is completely different from a a sort of state provided service it's very hard for the state to be so personalized and with that ability to build relationship comes trust um Relationship is such a valuable commodity. The possibility of change, whether that's on an individual level, if you're in trouble in your life and you need help, that often is made possible through the strength of a or some relationships around you. Um, And similarly for a community as a whole, that we are strengthened through our relationships with each other. I think a lot of what civil society does is build relationship um, and, and a level of love and actually to go back to the conception of charity charity etymologically means love which is interesting to remember Um, it's about it is about those very very um personal points of connectivity although it is also really important to say particularly for my organization because this is what we're all about that what civil society then does is it it takes that knowledge and experience at a very very granular level you know it's bearing witness to life as it is lived by people here and now. And it takes that knowledge and experience and it plays it back to government to say, this is what's happening. Um, if it feels that policies need to change, it will advocate for that. And also absolutely critical, it is in civil society that people often will dare to dream bigger and differently and come up with the really big rad- radical ideas. So if you look back through the history of social reform, whether it was abolition of slavery, whether it was the campaign for women's vote, or indeed the pressure for climate action, all of that comes from and it was originated in civil society, which is an aspect of civil society that we really don't pay attention to. Governments will typically respond to pressure built by civil society that gives the government, if you like, a permission to act. I think, you know, the XR activity in recent years, building on decades of activism, is a really good example of seeing how people through civil society can build pressure for change. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Sue in a minute. But first... Are the people in your cabinet? In your cabinet? In your cabinet? The Shadow Cabinet always sounds like it should be the name of a secret cabal of ninjas or something. Beware the Shadow Cabinet. That could easily be a Wu Tang album title. Sadly, uh, it's not that exciting. But if you, like me, find politics gets you as worked up as Protect Your Neck or any other Wu bangers, then actually it is still pretty exciting. There's a new opposition leader in town, and while it looks as though he's been quickly drawn with a ruler and an HP pencil, Keir Starmer isn't as sketchy as you might think. I've already seen Twitter explode in upset with big-time fans of previous leader and something you'll find on the beach, Jeremy Corbyn, saying that they'll leave the party because Starmer will drag things back to the more centrist Labour days of anti-immigration promises on a mug and stupid giant tombstones with pledges on. While those who hate Corbyn so much they wanted the Conservatives to win the election got all upset when some members of Corbyn's shadow cabinet have still ended up on Starmer's, claiming that Labour will never learn. An ironic statement from people who largely thought Change UK might be a powerful force in politics. <laughs> but actually, while it might seem that Starmer is already embracing the position of Labour leader fully by upsetting all factions at once, the truth is that within his first few days, he's shown that he might actually be attempting to pull the party together. It may be a sort of soft left, whatever that means, direction. Whether or not they then tear themselves apart again is to be seen, and chances are several members will say only communists want people to work together and then stand a leadership coup against him, where Starmer has to run against an espresso machine. So this week, I thought it might be useful to have a quick rundown of Starmer and just who is in his new, well, almost new, except not entirely, shadow cabinet. First up, there's Starmer himself, obviously. Uh, As a defence lawyer and then QC, he worked on abolishing the death penalty in Commonwealth countries, represented the MI5 whistleblower David Shaler and the McLibel activist too. And that work, that quite sort of socially motivated work, is often countered by critics though, with his time as Director of Public Prosecutions, where while he did help get justice for Stephen Lawrence's family, he also prosecuted benefit cheats. Thing is, with that job, as he says, he didn't get to pick which cases he wanted, and I don't think you're allowed to look at certain ones and just go, nah, I don't want to defend them. That's not how the law works. 
Keir became an MP in 2015 for Holborn and St Pancras and was given a position in Corbyn's Shadow Cabinet as Shadow Immigration Secretary, which he then resigned from when lots of other MPs resigned from the Cabinet in protest of Corbyn. Starmer said that he resigned because everyone else had, and it's quite lucky that all the other MPs hadn't decided to punch themselves in the face. When Corbyn won re-election against office furniture catalogue of a man, Owen Smith, Starmer then took the position as Shadow Brexit Secretary, where he did some excellent calling out of the government's complete mess of a lack of plan, while also trying to push for a second referendum that wasn't popular with anyone on the planet, and saying that immigration was too high based on nothing whatsoever. He also said that freedom of movement had to go, but free movement of labour should be a thing, which is not dissimilar to saying cheese sandwiches are awful, but I like sandwiches that have cheese in them. Starmer has been described as soft left, which sounds less like a political position and a lot like a description of how you might hang in your trousers. What it does mean, though, is that Starmer has said the Labour 2017 manifesto is the party's foundational document. He supports social ownership of public services and wants tuition fees to be scrapped. He wants to overhaul universal credit rather than get rid of it and is anti-austerity. But I mean, who is it nowadays? I mean, it's just not cool anymore, is it? It's so like 20 teens. Starmer is no fan of illegal wars, uh, he was anti-Iraq war and wants a review of all UK arms, which is great as it might mean that my sexy guns can finally get the four stars they deserve. Oh, sorry, you mean weapons. <laughs> yeah, cool. He says he sees himself as a socialist, comes from a working class background despite looking like he was born in Waitrose and has mainly banged on about unity and now he doesn't want to be like any previous leader, just be the new leader. Actually, during his campaign, he said he just wanted to be the future leader, which sounded much better and like he might be in charge of robots. So, by looking more Blair but being politically more Corbyn, either Starmer can hopefully pull all sides together or alternatively prove that absolutely neither factions of Labour are right. His cabinet probably best reflects this more combinational unity standing already. Obviously, Angela Rayner is now deputy leader and also chair of the Labour Party, being in charge of party administration, election campaigns and all that jazz. I'm not going to talk too much about Rayner here, but she was the shadow education secretary under Corbyn and was seen as very much on his side of the party till, during her deputy leadership campaign, she said that Jezza didn't command respect within Labour. Which is an odd thing to say when she was in his shadow cabinet. I mean, why take a position with someone you don't actually respect? It's sort of like, who is the fool, the fool or the fool who follows the person they don't respect very much. But again, her politics are very socialist. So while Starmer says he's socialist and everyone says actually you're soft left, Rayner says she's soft left, but all her policies are about making the case for everyday socialism and having a national education service, which abbreviated would be NES, and that might upset various old school gamers when they find out that instead of playing Mario, they just have to get a G. CSE. While Rayner was elected, the role of chair which Starmer gave her is a bit more of a hidden position in the party, and while you might want to read something into that, it's also, since 2007, often been held by the deputy leader, so stop reading, yeah? I mean, if nothing else, I'm talking to you, it's just rude. No, I don't believe you can do both at the same time. No, I don't. No, you can keep saying it, I don't believe you. No, sorry. Next up is Shadow Chancellor, who is Annalise Dodds, uh, replacing retired Jack Russell, John McDonnell. And she is the first woman ever to hold the position of Chancellor, whether Shadow or uh, Daylight, which is exciting. Uh, Dodds was Shadow Finance Secretary under McDonnell and was an MEP before that, sitting on the Committee on Economic and Monetary Affairs within the EU. Uh, I mean, she was part of that group. She didn't just turn up and sit on people involved in it. That would be really weird. She's both praised former Prime Minister and Bagpuss Gordon Brown for his handling of the financial crisis and had 
backing from John McDonnell as well. She's very against tax avoidance, has done loads of work on tackling it and is overall pretty left-wing in her policies. But then having Annalise Dodds in the cabinet is balanced by extra from Channel 4's humans, Rachel Reeves, who is now Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, a weird role that will mainly involve telling Michael Gove to shut up. But Reeves herself is very well known for her comments when she was Shadow Work and Pension Secretary under Ed Miliband, for saying, we don't want to be seen and we're not the party to represent those who are out of work. Which is a shame, as after the last election, that means she doesn't want to represent most of her former colleagues. In 2011, she employed unpaid interns, which breached the National Minimum Wage Act, uh, which is an odd thing. How would you get those interns involved? Hey, yeah, come and work for me for the experience of never wanting to work for an MP again. Brilliant. In 2013, uh, Reeves said that the Labour Party would be tougher than the Conservatives in slashing benefits, which at the time would have been quite hard to do unless you took actual benefits and then hit them with a sword. But then she did really hate people who didn't have a job. And Reeves has also spoken quite loudly about immigration needing to be curbed. And while all those things that she said back then make her sound like the sort of Labour MP many on Twitter would tell to go and join the Tories, in many ways, especially compared to the current government, she's actually further right than they are. It's going to be odd having a shadow chancellor condemn government financial policies and a shadow chancellor of the duchy demanding a return to austerity. Not so much a broad church as two separate religious factions living together, but only because someone took the barbed wire fence down and things are starting to get heated. Leadership candidate and the sweatshirt ear kid Lisa Nandy has been made foreign secretary and her ideology is also a sort of weird soft left as she's a big unionist but was very anti-Corbyn, leading Owen Smith's leadership campaign against him, which obviously was massively successful. She said that Labour needs to be more anti-immigration to win back Brexit voting seats, but then she also advocates keeping freedom of movement. Because she's so good at causing divisions within her party, she also likes to cause them among herself. Nandi is the chair of the Labour Friends of Palestine and the Middle East, so we know that her foreign policies will be along the same lines as Corbyn's party when it comes to those areas. But she's also cited how Spain treated Catalonia for how to deal with Scottish nationalism, which sounds a lot like she thinks police should turn up and hit everyone. Not a great idea, and knowing Scotland almost certainly wouldn't work either. Shadow Home Secretary as Welsh MP and what if an estate agent used a funny Instagram filter, Nick Thomas-Simmons, who's a former barrister and has written books about Nye Bevan and Clever Antley. But then Injustice is always posing for a school photo, David Lammy, who's more of the Blairite school of Labour, while in education is politics' smallest face, Rebecca Long-Bailey, who is seen as the Corbyn continuity candidate. And then Ed Miliband is back as Energy Secretary. There are, of course, other appointments, but what I'm trying to say is that Starmer's really picked from across the party, like a sort of sticker book, but where you haven't got any of the shiny ones and now the challenge will be if they all work together or if we're in for another five years of everyone undermining each other while Starmer acts like a teacher who tries to tell everyone to stop fighting but mostly cries in the staff room but it is interesting is it interesting enough to win back the red wall while keeping on board remainer voting southern areas who knows but we're also in a coronavirus era now where spending money isn't as scary to some as it was just months ago and maybe all it needed was a man who looks like a child has made a draft of him in minecraft in order to sell that to us personally i still think labor should go to the wu-tang route give every member a rap name i.e a doddy nandy benefit slasher and so on and then even if they fight as much as the Wu did we might still get a decent album out of it and now back to Sue. So, in this current climate, how uh, in danger are charities, especially the smaller ones, because of the pandemic? Because I'm, I'm guessing there's a couple of levels here in that people can't donate because they don't have money, but also the government are now funding a lot of things that they weren't funding maybe four or five months ago. Uh, are both of those pressures on how charities may survive in the future? 
The big issue actually is public donation. Um, so for all those charities, and obviously this would be a very great many, that, that um, rely on the public um, through doing events in particular, so all the sort of fun runs and raffles and fairs, um, that's the money that's fallen off a cliff. So the sector annually, well, actually, this is charity. So in fact, one point of interest is that I don't know that we have a, a figure for the value of civil society across all of its parts, as discussed earlier. We do have figures for registered charities. That's that's an example of a, of a gap that could be usefully filled. But the charity sector has an income of about 17 billion a year, and it's estimated that it's going to lose um, up to 4 billion in the first three months of the crisis. Over half the income in the sector comes from public donation. About a third comes from government and the rest from other sources. So it's still the public who, who are primarily paying for charitable activity, which is really important to remember. It, it, you know, they are ours individually, if you like. Um, so that's so the four billion loss of income is obviously a big deal. What the sector is arguing, quite rightly, is that whilst it has access to the furloughing scheme, charities are not experiencing any drop in demand. It's not like a business where actually consumers no longer can or want to buy their product. Charities are experiencing a huge uplift in demand. Think of the local hospice, for example. Hospices rely overwhelmingly on public donation. That money has stopped overnight. They are not stopping caring for the people that they have in their homes. That's the gap. And the government, um, despite it being three weeks, still hasn't responded. Um, and the sector is literally on the edge of a cliff and is facing a terrible, terrible collapse, which not only would mean really vital services needed today would be at risk, but looking forward, when we get through this crisis, the social infrastructure we will need to cope with the measures that we've had to take economically, civil society will be absolutely vital and it needs to be as strong as it can be. And it is at risk now for the want of a few billion pounds. That's what the sector is calling for, a pot of a few billion pounds to be distributed to keep the sector alive. And, uh, are, you know, is, is the sector able to call out the government properly on this? And I might be equating uh, things incorrectly here, but I remember that the gagging clause has been quite an issue for some years in charities being able to say to the government, we think you're doing this wrong. Is that still an issue now in, in terms of, you know, the, the sector really needing more help than, than they're getting? There's a few different things going on politically. I mean, it's true to say, actually, that it, historically, neither left nor right has had a very positive view of civil society in simple terms, because I think both really want to think that everything has to happen in their own image. So on the left, they want the state to do everything, and on the right, the market, in very simple terms. For the current government and for recent administrations, there, there is no doubt that there has been a real attempt to um, limit the voice of the charity sector, and particularly big charities that have been very critical of government. Um, things like the Lobbying Act, which were ostensibly introduced to bring transparency to commercial lobbying, didn't really make any difference to that, but have had a chilling effect on charities because it introduces all these quite difficult to interpret requirements to publish data in the run-up to elections. It is already illegal for charities to be partisan. You cannot be party political. And it is also illegal to, uh, for a charity to, to exist solely to pursue a change of law. So many would argue, why on earth do you need a lobbying act for the charity sector? But the sector 
um, has been affected by that. The regulator, the Charity Commission, has been quite ambiguous in some of its messaging and it feels as if they kind of are obscuring the difference between being political and being partisan. So that, and it's true to say probably that trustees of charities who are sort of trained to be very risk averse sort of see all of this mood music and sort of think, right, we mustn't have that, we mustn't have a political view. Of course, civil society has to have a political view. Politics is public debate, it's for absolutely everybody. So um, that has been a big deal. We've also had gagging clauses attached to government grants, which prohibit certain forms of um, activity. And right now we've got some threatened changes to things like judicial review, which would affect the ability of civil society to hold government accounts. So there have been a whole series of measures. Behind all of that stuff, though, I think there is something where, particularly for this government, they don't really understand the sector and they don't really understand its worth. And it's just... It, you know, so that there's there's bits of this that are quite deliberate and purposeful, but there's also just a sense that they don't really get it and they have no experience of it. Very few people on the government benches would come from civil society organisations and they just sort of think, well, it can look after itself, can't it? So interesting enough, there's a guy called Danny Kruger, who's now um, a Conservative MP. He wrote the government civil society strategy a couple of years ago and has been calling out on Twitter the need for the government to act and super fast because he can see, he wrote their strategy, it, it, it still is their strategy, he can see the value of this sector and all that it does, but he's highly unusual um, in politics and he's not on the front bench at the moment. It's, I, I just, uh, on your earlier bit about the, the being political and, and being partisan, I really enjoyed the um, newsletter that was from the uh, your foundation, Sheila McKechnie Foundation. Uh, it was written by Chloe Hardy, your Director of Policy and Communications. Um, and the one you sent out this week, which is just about, you can't be too political because this situation we're currently in is political. Everything about it is political and it's impossible to avoid that. Is it, I mean, in a way, people being told that making, you know, being too political about this or bringing politics into it is sort of shutting down some of the most important areas. Well, absolutely. I think, you know, in many ways it would suit it would suit political parties to say we leave the politics to us, you know, and that goes back to the messaging to the sector. So we have had in you know not that distant past commissioners on the Charity Commission who said stick to the knitting verbatim, you know. So you guys, you keep passing out the soup, you know, hand out the blankets, leave all the heavy thinking to us. Well, civil society, as discussed, has been behind most radical reform through time. Right now, with this crisis, obviously there's an immediate situation that has to take the uh, the focus of our attention. And yet we all can see as well that it is going to presage an opportunity for really significant change. So there is already a really interesting discussion welling up in civil society, touching on other sectors, touching on, uh, you know, um, public debate touching on some contributions to the private sector but there is a big conversation about how do we try and take the best from this situation for the future recognizing that quite a few things that I think are of concern to a great many people have not been progressing in the way that we would like whether that's social inequality whether it's social mobility the number of children in poverty or indeed sustainability and climate change there have been uh, efforts to try and move some of those things uh, which have not frankly succeeded. Civil society largely exists to pursue those outcomes and hasn't been getting very far. How do we use this moment and this 
rupture in public experience to get a mandate for the kind of change that actually would bring about social outcomes that I think really, you know, street by street, if you were to ask people, do these things matter? People would say yes. We haven't had the sort of political uh, leadership and courage to get us there. And I guess our passion is that civil society needs to be using its experience and its heft to be playing much harder in those political debates. And that's what we as a foundation exist to try and do. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about that uh, in in just a minute and how we can kind of help uh, continue changing things perhaps for the better uh, and and supporting civil society and um, one more negative question though apologies <laughs> before we before we get to a positive what we can do um i i i know it doesn't necessarily well may, i suppose it does directly affect civil society but um one of the other concerns i've seen is that uh, while lots of local groups and local charities are really helping at the moment a lot of people are also resorting to rather large big global companies such as amazon who are now supplying deliveries and and is there a concern that that's going to affect local industries and community outlets and and things like that and how do you maybe support your local group instead of relying on some of the the larger global uh, organizations yes well i think again you know that's something that many people feel concerned about and have felt concerned about quite some time it's part isn't it of you know how technology has changed so much in all of our lives um and uh an encouragement to go back to sort of small and local um I mean, I think I think that's a very good example of how this situation will bring people's attention back to the importance of place and community and where you live and what's available in where you live. Um, and that, you know, at a time like this, if we don't have those resources locally, then we are so much weaker. Uh, the lack of investment in community, the lack of investment in community infrastructure, whether that's youth centres or community spaces, is uh, has emptied out so much more than the value of the space itself. There's an organisation called the Local Trust who are running this very interesting experiment where 150 communities around the country have been given a million pounds each. And the people there have been told, spend it as you will, do something good and do something useful. And they published a report at the end of last year called The Left Behind, and it found a correlation between community space in the literal sense, so, you know, town halls and community centres and so on, and um, social capital. So the ability of, of, you know, the strength of that community um, and its well-being, including across indicators like poverty and so on. So community assets really matter. There have been interesting things happening in recent years, like asset transfer, where forward-thinking local authorities are handing assets over to the community. So community pubs, for example, which we see more of. So at the periphery, there are really interesting things emerging. I think what we in the sector would like to to see happen is that those things at the periphery become mainstream. They're not just sort of interesting ideas on the the outline skirts of things, but they are absolutely central ideas. yeah, having said all that, we are clearly in a in a world where technology facilitates a lot of things, and I'm I'm sure we uh, all will want to make use of that, but hopefully in a more balanced way. Um, which brings me on to uh, probably most important question I can ask you, which is, uh, as you said, that you know civil society uh, is is key in in creating large reform, and uh, I, I think already seeing a lot of people suddenly realizing the way things have been over the last ten years with austerity 
really don't uh, make a lot of sense. Especially, you know, and the fact that debt can just be wiped out and that structures can be put in place, you know, that uh, that really need to be. Uh, I suppose to put it one way, um, you know, what what can we do as as the listeners and just as people in the public? What can we do to kind of engage and be part of? civil society and support them and make sure that the importance of what's happening now isn't forgotten yeah well I guess I would I mean it's lovely to be asked to come on the program and have the opportunity to talk about civil society um and hopefully kind of encourage people to give some thought to that you know what is civil society and what role does it play there are people talking about that across the political spectrum so there are think tanks like the Centre for Social Justice that are very active in this discussion, as well as things like Compass, um, who people might know, both of whom are talking about civil society. In the very immediate term, it would be great um, to get behind the lobbying effort to get the government to actually step in and do something to help the sector. So the National Council of Voluntary Organisations, which represents charities and voluntary organisations, is leading that lobby they have a hashtag everyday counts, which they're asking people to use. Um, the National Emergencies Trust is uh, running a fundraising appeal. It's got to something like 16 million today. So frankly, still a drop in the ocean compared to what's needed. But they're actively fundraising. Citizens UK, always interesting. Um, if people want to get involved locally, they um, are all around the country. Um, and in terms of charities that are pushing money right down to local community, the two I've mentioned are the, Tr- the Trussell Trust and Fair Share, both of whom do amazing work getting food directly to, to the people that really need it. Thank you so much to Sue for that. You can find the Sheila McKechnie Foundation at smk.org.uk or at SMK Campaigners on Twitter or all of them social media places. Uh, Sue can be found on Twitter too at Sue underscore T-I-B-B-A-L-L-S. And do sign up to their excellent newsletter, which you can do on their website and check out their podcast too, which is called the Social Power Podcast, which much like this show, you can get on all the many places on the internet where podcasts lurk. As per always, the campaigns and groups that Sue mentions will be up on the partypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website soonish on the page for this episode. Thanks to the excellent Cat Day, aka Chronicle Flask on Twitter, who kindly types up all that stuff in between doing all her own writing work. I don't know how she does it, but it is brilliant. Uh, so again I ask ye people in these lockdown times who what where why do you want to hear about shall I only speak to germ experts and if so is that in regards to the coronavirus or just various members of the government or do you want to hear about something different or should I just leave these bits blank and you can pretend you're listening to something but engaging in blissful quiet while your children slash dogs slash housemates slash police who've heard you're occasionally opening a window destroy your home let me know who I should be interviewing, and you can do that at the at Parpolbro Twitter account, Partly Political Broadcast Facebook page, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could use the 5G networks to send a super fast message, but in the meantime, somehow, against all science and logic, infect thousands of people with smallpox hiccups and an inability to remember how to make tea. As always, it's probably best to... No, wait. No, wait, do the 5G thing. I feel like if that is what it does, then frankly, some people deserve it. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. And thank you once again for listening. And uh, you've made it to the end. Uh, Like, uh, 
Look, I've run out of other words that mean the end. So if you listen to the whole show, uh, you could just be known as the Parpol Holes. No, wait, no, that doesn't sound good. Okay, look, please send in suggestions. Um, anyway, you're here. I'm still here because I have no choice. And that means it's time for more secret politics facts. And this week it is a real biggie. Um, okay, you ready? Did you know that former Liberal Democrat leader Men- Mingus Campbell, Mingus, not Menzies, Mingus, um, he was known as Ming Campbell, not because it was a shortening of his first name, but because he used to do that thing where he'd hold down one nostril and then just snot out of the other, and it was really disgusting. Um, he doesn't do that anymore now, though, because of the pandemic and everything. He just spits. He just spits into um, into sort of hedges or, or people's front gardens. So there you go. Hot facts. Uh, you won't get actual, definitely not fake, um, except I wait. Ming Campbell's still alive, isn't he? So just pretend I said allegedly in front of all of that. Allegedly. Anyway, more hot podcasts next week. And of course, if you enjoyed that or any of this show at all, do please tell others to listen in. Review it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Castbox, or that wall that you walk to every day because you're not allowed everywhere else. And do please throw us a pound or three at the Kofi or Patreon sites. Cheers, big ears to Acast, my brother the last skeptic, Cat Day, and Mushy Bees for contributions and optical illusions. Okay, just contributions. And this will be back next week when acting Prime Minister Dominic Raab has been admitted to hospital after eating a bowl of wax fruit he found in number 10. And with no other healthy cabinet ministers left, Liz Truss steps up and accidentally manages to sell the entire country to the Falkland Island within minutes. To the Falkland Islands within minutes. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by Lockdown Exercise Pro Tips, a guide to the most imaginative exercise you can do on your one trip to the outside, including the world's safest game of knockdown ginger, stealing Amazon packages, then running away as fast as possible, dog flinging, and spending four hours trying to pick up a tree in the park and say you have to practice for your international caper tossing event at the end of the year. Lockdown Exercise Pro Tips, getting you in a fit state for the police state. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.